Chrissy, that was a beautiful reminder that we, uh, we can remember what God's done for us in the midst of everything uh, in our lives at the end and throughout all of that. Thank you for being here this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather. And as JT said, I've preached a lot of places, but I've never preached in space. So we're going to see how this one uh, goes. But we're thankful for each and every volunteer and that's uh, going to be a part of this week and looking forward to what God has in store uh, for us. And a happy Father's Day uh, to each father as well as I extend that to you. And we're grateful for uh, you and, and what you've done and what you are doing to raise the next generation. If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue in our series through the book of James. And you can open them up or turn them on uh, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 this morning. And uh, we're looking at what it means to put our faith in action. As believers, we are called to live out our faith. And so what does that look like? How are we uh, to put our faith in action uh, in our lives? And we're going to look at that. And uh, as you consider the book of James, you'll notice that James is really concerned about our spiritual maturity. He's concerned about you and I and uh, our progression in life as we become more like Jesus Christ. And what he does to answer and to look at that topic is he addresses about every single issue you can think of in this life. He moves from things like our wallets all the way to our tongues. Uh, to see uh, what a mature believer looks like. And so, friend, no matter where you're at in your life today, whether you're a growing Christian or an immature Christian, James is going to give us the encouragement we need uh, to mature as believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, if you remember correctly, we looked at the first topic last week, or we began uh, our issues as we looked at the issue of adversity, trials. I don't know if you remember that, uh, but I read an article this week. I thought it was pretty interesting. They say that when individuals go to things like concerts or things that they're really excited about, they often forget completely what they just experienced. Uh, in fact, I read it this week, Taylor Swift. I don't know if you've heard that name before. Some of you probably are familiar with Taylor Swift. I'm not encouraging you to listen to her music. I'm just using it as an illustration, okay? Taylor Swift just had a concert, and her, uh, the people that attended the concert were actually complaining because they couldn't remember the concert. And so they did a study, and they came to find out that when the brain becomes so excited about things that it often forgets the whole experience. So I got to thinking about my preaching. <laughs> so if, you, if you've forgotten what I've said, it's probably because you're just so excited about it, okay? <laughs> we'll use that, I'm sure. We'll go on and use that, Pastor Paul. I'm going to stick with that one, okay? So we're looking at adversity, and looking at how we are to handle adversity in our lives. And I uh, struggled as I considered what to exactly say today, but I uh, decided to just continue on in the next few verses. And so what I came up with was the main idea, the main theme, and it's this. If you're taking notes or you're following along in uh, the Weekly Connect, the, the main idea for today's text is this. Regardless of the situation, regardless of what you're going through in your life, an active faith or a mature believer knows how to handle 
adversity. Yet the problem in the midst of all of this is that we don't always handle it well. And it's because we don't know how. And so we set out to answer that question last week. How do we handle adversity? Well, James gives us four reminders that we are to remember if we want to handle our adversity. We looked at the first two last week. We must remember the right approach in our trials. That is, to count it all joy. I'm not saying to enjoy suffering. I'm just saying to count it joy knowing that God has a purpose behind your pain. God has a reason for everything that he does in your life. And nothing that you experience has not passed through his hand. And so there's a reason behind why you suffer. And so God says you can count it joy as a Christian. What a unique opportunity we have as Christians to suffer for the name of Christ and to count it all joy. And so we remember the right approach. And then number two, we also have to remember the right advantages. Verse three gives us the first advantage of trials that we talked about last week. And that is endurance, the ability to have patience, to continue to keep going when the going gets tough. Then when endurance is complete, verse four says that you become complete or you become mature, not sinless, but you become conformed to the image of Christ. God uses suffering to make you more like his son. What a blessing that is to consider that through our suffering, uh, God can use that to conform us to the image of his son. We're going to finish uh, the latter part of James going through verse 12 and looking at the last two reminders that we are to remember. So if you have your place in James chapter 1, I want you to consider verse number 5. Here's what James does as he begins to give us assistance. And that's the third reminder we are to remember today. The third reminder that we are to remember is that we have the right assistance in trials. James doesn't leave us without help in the midst of it. Notice verse 5. He says this, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally or generously and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. It's easy for us in life to stand from a viewpoint where I'm at and to say, count it all joy when you suffer. It's easy for me to say at this point that you should just rejoice in the fact that you're going through suffering, but it's a whole lot harder to actually say that when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of difficulty. And so I think James realizes that. He's a realist. He, he's living in reality. And so what he does is he not only gives you assistance for trials, he also gives you assistance within your trials. And he says that you are to cry out for wisdom. That's an interesting thought. Notice that James doesn't begin this discussion on assistance or help in the midst of your trials. He doesn't begin by saying you need to ask the Lord why. Nothing's wrong with asking the Lord why, but he doesn't say you need to ask for strength and grace. No, he says you need to ask for wisdom. We don't always do that though, do we? I mean, think about that. When was the last time you, in the midst of your trial, asked God for wisdom? When was the last time you asked God to give you what I consider one of the most important things in this life? We don't. We, we end up seeking out something else many times in our life. But James says you are to ask for wisdom. Now, we have to understand what wisdom is, don't we? To actually practice this in our lives, we have to understand what it is. Before we ask for it, we have to know what it is. So you say, well, Pastor Nick, what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is not knowledge. 
See, we, we come sometimes thinking that if we just collect a bunch of information, then we have a bunch of wisdom. Wisdom is actually the application of knowledge. Somebody put it this way for me, and I thought it was good. They say, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad, right? <laughs> knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad. You see, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And if we were to consider this biblically, I thought this was good, and I want to give you this today. Chuck Swindoll says this, if you were to define wisdom biblically, it's the ability to view life from God's perspective. It's the ability to view life from God's standpoint. It's thinking God's thoughts. It's living as God would live. And don't we need that type of wisdom in suffering? I mean, asking God for his viewpoint in the midst of suffering, how could that clarify? How could that change the way we view what we're going through in our life? The Bible says, get that perspective. I love what Vance Havner said, the famous evangelist. I put on the screen for you. If you lack knowledge, go to school. If you lack wisdom, get on your knees. Get on your knees. That's good, isn't it? If you want God's perspective in your life, the Bible says get on your knees and ask the Lord for it. And when you ask for it, I love this, notice the end of verse 5. What does James remind us of? He says that God giveth to all men or women liberally or generously, as some of your translations might say, and upbraideth not. God doesn't choose favorites when it comes to wisdom. He doesn't say, well, your problem's too small. Your, your issue's too easy, so I'm not going to give you that. He doesn't say, well, you've asked too many times. Isn't that great? God doesn't look at our problems as annoying. God doesn't look at our problems as something that is a distraction. He says that if you ask for it, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to you without any hesitation. And you say, Pastor Nick, why would James tell us to ask for wisdom? I mean, think about that. Why would James tell us in the midst of our suffering, why wouldn't he tell us to ask for strength? Or why wouldn't he tell us, as, the Paul, as Apostle Paul says, to ask for grace, right? My grace is sufficient. Why wouldn't he tell us to ask for a reason? Well, here's why. Uh, I thought this was good. One pastor pointed this out. He says, you are to ask for wisdom so that you do not waste the opportunity that God has given you in the midst of your trials. You do not waste the opportunity that God has given you in the midst of suffering to use it for your good and to conform you to the image of his son. You see, you need wisdom in your life in the midst of trials and difficult situations. You need wisdom so that you do not squander what God is trying to do through suffering. And many times if we don't have the right viewpoint... If we don't view trials from the vantage point of God's eyes, we can miss what God is trying to do in our life. And by the way, it's much easier to grow in suffering than it is in success. It's much easier to grow in suffering than it is in success. You think about that. God can grow you more in the midst of your difficult situation from the bottom than he can from the top. Like what Buddy Gordon said to me last week, he walked up to me and he, he said this, he shared what a pastor said recently to him. 
He said that the mountaintop, the pastor said, is beautiful. But not much grows there, does it? Where does everything grow? In the valley. In the valley. See, it's beautiful on the mountaintop, but not much grows there. But it's in the valley, it's in the trials, it's in the difficult situations, it's in the dark moments in your life that God can use that to help you grow, to become more like his son. And so we ask for wisdom in order to grow, in order not to squander, not to waste what God is trying to do. Warren Wiersbe told a story about one time when he was preaching on James. He had a secretary in his life who was struggling with a lot of uh, issues. Her husband went blind. She had a stroke. And on top of all of that, a couple days later, her husband was rushed to the hospital thinking that he was going to lose his life. So he saw a secretary one day at church and he walked up to her and he said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Well, she looked back at him and she said, what exactly are you asking God to do? You think about that, that startled him a little bit. He took a step back saying, well, I'm asking that God gives you strength. I'm asking that God gives you grace and mercy and the ability to continue on. And she said, well, she said, I'm, I'm glad you're praying for that, but would you pray for one more thing? Would you pray that I have wisdom not to waste all of this suffering? Would you pray that I have wisdom not to waste all this suffering? What a perspective on trials. If only we could gain that perspective in the midst of everything we go through, I believe God can use that as we view it from his vantage point. Because often, and here's the, here's the point of the matter, here's what I'm trying to get across. Often we ask God how to get out of a trial instead of asking God what to get out of a trial. We often ask God how to get out of a trial, but we never ask God what to get out of a trial. And you need the wisdom in order to view these things from God's viewpoint so that he can grow you. Now, James doesn't leave us without a stipulation, though. He doesn't leave us without a condition. If we're going to ask for wisdom, the Bible says we're to ask with a certain manner or ask a certain way. Notice verse number 6 here. He says... If you lack wisdom, ask for it. But then he gets to verse 6 and he says, But let him who's asking for wisdom ask in faith. Nothing wavering or not doubting. For he that wavereth or he that doubteth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. If we're going to ask for wisdom in the midst of our trials, the Bible says we have to ask in faith. We have to trust the Lord that he's actually going to bring about what he's promised. And we have to do it without doubt. And by the way, that goes for everything in this life. I mean, think about that. What does Hebrews eleven six say? Without faith, what? It is impossible to please God. In every area of your life, if you don't have faith, you are not going to please God. You're not going to get what God wants to give you if you don't ask for it, trusting that the Lord's going to give it to you. James then says, don't doubt. See, the opposite of faith is doubt. It's doubting what God wants to do in your life. It's doubting God's power in your life. It's doubting God's strength. And it's even doubting God's ability to do things. And James says you are to put away doubt. And you are to trust the Lord with everything in your life. And he says, here's why. Because a man who doubts, verse 6, is what? He's like a wave of the sea. Well, what does a wave do? If you're sitting uh, at the ocean and, and you're watching the waves come in, they're unpredictable. 
You're not sure which way the wave's going to go. A few weeks ago, we, we went to the beach on vacation, and uh, I was there with my daughter, Karis, who's about one and a half, and she's standing there, and all she wanted to do, which was the cutest little thing for about five minutes, but uh, all she wanted to do was walk down to the edge of the water, and she just wanted to watch the waves. But every time a wave would come in, she would grab my hand. She'd reach up for it. Why? Because she's scared. She's not sure which way the wave's going to go. It could go this way, it could go that way, it could crash, it could swell, it could go down. A wave is unpredictable. And friends, the same thing goes for the person who doubts. The person who doubts what God is doing. The person who says they have faith, but they try to keep all the options on the table. The Bible says you're like a wave, you're unpredictable. He also says not only you're unpredictable, but what are you? You are, verse 8, a double-minded man. It's actually a word that many authors believe James actually coined himself because we don't find it anywhere else in the Bible. And it means to have two souls. Literally, to be on the fence, to be two different people, to love the world, but then also to love the Lord. Uh, to have faith, but then also to doubt. To wonder, is God really going to come through for me? God, I'm asking you for wisdom but I'm going to keep all the doors open just in case something else comes through for me. The Bible says you're a double-minded man. And when you're like that, you're unstable. Not only in your prayer life, but also in every other issue you face. In all areas of your life. If you doubt what God is doing. If you don't ask in faith, you're like a wave tossed in the sea. But you're also double-minded. You're unstable. And verse 7 reminds us that... You may ask for it, but you're not going to get it. You're confused about who God is. God's not going to give you the wisdom you need if you don't ask for it in faith without doubting. A double-minded man, I read this week, is kind of like catching, and I've never done this before, so don't hold me to it, but it's kind of like catching a monkey. Now again, I've never done this before, so I'm no expert in this, and I'm not giving you the permission to go out and try this, because if you say Pastor Nick said it, I'll deny it, all right? I'll deny it. I'm not saying try this, but a double-minded man is one who's unstable, one who doubts, is kind of like that monkey. See, here's how you catch a monkey. It's one of the cheapest and easiest ways to do this. You take a long, hollow-neck gourd, all right? Now, I didn't try this. You cut off the bottom and you fill it up with rice, okay? And when you fill it up with rice, you put it on a tree, and what the hungry monkey will do is the hungry monkey will actually stick its hand down in the gourd, and it will sliver there because it's a small hand. It can get in there, and it will grab the rice. Now, all is well, but here's the problem. When the monkey tries to take the hand out of the rice, it's stuck, isn't it? It has a fist. It can't pull out its hand. And the monkey doesn't have the wisdom to actually let go of the rice in order to get his hand out. He'd rather eat in captivity than he would be free without the food. You see, he's double-minded. He wants his cake and he wants to eat it as well. You think about that, friend. It's the same thing with you in your life. If you ask for wisdom in the midst of your trial in the midst of your difficult situation, and you doubt 
that God is actually going to come through for you, the Bible says you're double-minded, you're unstable, you're, you're unable to actually receive what God wants to do in your life. What we are to do is to be single-minded. Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7, it reminds us, what does it say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he, what, will direct your path. We're to be single-minded. We are to trust the Lord and everything that he has in our life without doubting. So the Bible says, get rid of your doubt. Now notice this too, I love this. We are to ask it in faith. Ask it in faith, trusting the very creator of the universe. The one who holds Colossians, as I said last week, he holds all of this together at this very moment. Not only has he created it, but he's holding it all together. The very reason you exist today is because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and the very fact that he is the one molding, shaping, and holding it all together. And the Bible says, trust him. I mean, what a privilege we have to be able to go to the throne room of the Lord Jesus Christ and to beg and to ask and to plead for that wisdom. And God will give it to us when we ask in faith. So we are to remember the right assistance. God's given us wisdom. Number four, number four. Uh, the final reminder that we are to remember in the midst of our trials is this. We are to remember the right attitude. The right attitude. Notice verse 9 with me. It says this. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Verse 10. But the rich in that he is made low because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat but it withereth the grass. And the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. It's an interesting thing here that James begins to talk about the rich and the poor. You actually see throughout the book of James that that's a common theme that James continues to bring up. But you're probably wondering, like I was as I studied this, why would James bring up the topic of the rich and the poor at this moment? It's kind of odd in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trials, that he would talk about the rich and the poor. I mean, what's his problem? <laughs> well, for James, he knows that his audience, he knows that the people that he is speaking to, which, by the way, includes you and me, he knows that they're in every situation that he's talking about here. Some are rich, some are poor. And so he goes on to address each situation. And what he says is that trials, in reality... They have this leveling effect. They, they have this way about them of bringing each person to the same level. So if you're rich, trials bring you down. Now if you're low, it's going to bring you up. And you say, well, Pastor Nick, how do trials as a poor person bring me up? Here, here's the truth of the matter. The Bible says that, verse 9, if you're poor, you are to rejoice in the fact that you are a child of God. Think about that. In the midst of trials, regardless of what the world says to you, regardless of what the trials in your life say to you, regardless of what the situation you're in, you can rejoice knowing that you have the status of the child of the king. You are a child of God, and you can rejoice in those circumstances. If you have nothing, if you're looked down upon by the world, if you're struggling to make ends meets today, if you're struggling with any situation in your life and you feel low, the Bible says regardless of what situation you're in, you can rejoice in 
that. You can boast in that. But if you're rich, verse 10 tells us to be careful. We say, well, why are the rich to be careful? Well, here's why. Many times in our life, we think our possessions, we think our wealth, we think our financial state is going to take care of us. Right? If, if we had this, or if we had that, we think in our life that we're going to be okay. And what James is telling us is that those things, at the end of the day, verse 11, will be burned up. They will be destroyed. Your possessions at the end of the day, at the end of the matter, will not last. And so if you're relying on your income, if you're relying on your savings, it's not going to get you through. It's not going to take care of your trials. Trials are the way of bringing you down regardless of what situation you're in. And at the end of the day, James says that our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the name of Jesus Christ. Our attitude, James, at the end of the day, is reminding us should be one of trust and reliance. Not on the things we have, but they should be on the Lord Jesus Christ and the resources he provides. And by the way, they're limitless. The things God has provided for you are limitless. And so you rely on him. You don't rely on the things you have. You rely on Jesus Christ. One person in my life that has lived out this principle, as I've reflected on this today, and I think it's timely for Father's Day, but I've watched my own dad. I've watched my own dad actually live this principle in his life. Both my parents, I've watched them as growing up, obviously in the home, I've watched them go through different trials, different situations, different circumstances in their life, and they've always come back to this principle. They've always come back to relying on the Lord at the end of the day. And not only have they done that, but they've also encouraged their children to do the same thing. I can think of one time in particular, I was going through a difficult situation in my life, a dark time in my life, and I sat down with my dad, and I was really struggling through this, and he began to live out this principle. He began to actually declare this principle to me. He said, listen, God's been faithful to you. God's been faithful to me. And at the end of the day, you can rely on anything that he offers to get you through your situation because he is the one who is all-powerful. Not only have I watched this principle be lived out, but I've watched my dad pray this. You know, growing up in a, a pastor's home, you were at the church a lot, okay? When the doors were open, when the doors were closed, when you're not allowed in the church, you're there, okay? Because you're just in the pastor's home and that's where you're at. But I remember many times as a kid, we'd be playing around with my brothers and We'd be running through the halls, and we'd come into the sanctuary, and I'd see my dad on his knees there on Saturdays and many early mornings praying for me, praying that I would have the wisdom, praying that I would have the ability to rely on the Lord. Many times as a kid, I'd walk upstairs to go to bed, and I'd see my dad on his knees at his bed praying for me, praying for himself, praying that he would have the wisdom, praying that we would have the wisdom, the ability to rely on the Lord regardless of what situation we're in. Friends, I've reflected on that in my life. As I've considered that matter in my life, I want the same thing to be said of me. Now that I have a child, now that I have a wife, now that I have a family, I want my family to see not only that I'm on my knees praying, not only that I I'm seeking the Lord, but that I also rely on the Lord above anything else in this life. 
I want my church to know that. I want the people I'm around to know that. I want everybody in this life to know that regardless of what situation I'm in, I'm going to rely on Jesus Christ. Friend, the same thing should be said of you. So what are you relying on today? Again, are you trusting your children? Are you trusting your income, your, your social security? What are you trusting today? If it's not the Lord, it's in the wrong thing. It's in the wrong thing. So we rely on the Lord. That's the attitude James is trying to get across to us today. He wants you to rely on him. So in the midst of your storm, at the end of the day, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Don't trust your wealth. Trust the Lord. I love the way James concludes his section on adversity. He comes to the end of it, and he doesn't say, well, now you're going to get out of your trial, okay? It would be nice sometimes we think in a finite uh, mindset, in, in our worldly mindset, we think, well, maybe if we do all of these things, we'll just get out of our trial. You know, if I, if I have the right approach, if I have the right attitude, if I seek the right assistance, I'll get out of this trial. That's not what James concludes. That's not how James ends his discussion. Notice verse 12 here. He, he comes to the end of his section on adversity, and he says this, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, or endureth trials. For when he is tried... The Bible says, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. James says that if you endure trials, you will receive a crown. You'll receive these rewards. Now, James doesn't say you'll receive salvation. He's not adding works to salvation. He's not saying that if you endure trials, you'll be saved. Okay, he's not saying that. What he is saying, though, is that there are special rewards. There are special crowns for those who suffer and those who endure. And by the way, it's not a hope. It's not like, I think you'll get this or I hope you'll be rewarded. No, James says you will be. It's a verdict. It's a promise that when you endure through these trials, the Bible says you will be blessed you will be blessed with those rewards that many times we think that will never come. But our God is a God who keeps his promises. And he will bring those things, not only in this life, but also in the next. And so as I said last week, as I conclude today, as I said last week, I said you can't choose your crosses. But you can choose your responses to the crosses. And the Bible says every time you choose the right response, you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded. Howard Hendricks, a famous professor at Dallas Seminary, told a story as he was speaking on James. He said as a kid, he had this opportunity to play the top checkers player in his town. Now you think as a kid, he's thinking, well, I got more energy. I have my mind's quicker. I'm going to take care of this older guy in this checkers game. And so he sat down and as they started playing, he got a little motivated, and he said, I'm going to make the first move. And so he begins to make the first move, and there like that, the older man puts out a checker, and he says, you're going to have to jump me. And so he, Howard Hendricks, jumps the checker and takes it off, and of course, a few moments later, he jumps a little bit more, and the older man says, well, you're going to have to jump me again. And so Howard's thinking at this point, I'm going to win this game, no problem. This older man has nothing on me. Well, just like that... The older man jumps four times, <laughs> takes four checkers away from 
Howard. And the next thing you know, guess what? He's in king's territory. And what does he say to Howard? He says, crown me. And so he crowns the checker and the rest is history. <laughs> Howard lost that game very quickly. And he said this at the end of this story as he reflected on this time in his life. He said, no good checker player minds losing an occasional piece. Especially he can do that with joy so long as he knows that he will receive a crown. What a thought. Well, what a beautiful illustration of what it looks like to suffer. You see, friend, we can't choose our crosses, the Bible says. But we can choose our responses to the crosses. And what better way to encourage all of us at the end of this discussion on trials than to hear what Howard and what James effectively says, one day your crosses will be turned to a crown. One day your suffering will result in a blessing because God keeps his promises. And friend, you can know at the end of your life, God has not only provided a way to help you in your suffering, but he's promised to bless you in the midst of it. So I pray... I pray at the end of your life and as you go throughout life today that you can face adversity knowing that we have a king, the one who is in control and the one who blesses in the midst of everything we go through. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, as we gather today, we're mindful that when the word of God is open that you have promised to bless your word and to go forth and you are present and so we pray lord as the spirit moves throughout this room we know that there are individuals and there are many in this room who are struggling with difficult situations and and trying times and we can trust lord that you are present and that you have provided assistance in the midst of these things and you have asked us to not only trust you but to go forth and to endure so that one day, as James 1.12 says, we will receive the crown of life. We will be blessed. So, Lord, I pray for strength and help and all of those things. I pray for your presence to be made known to those who are suffering. We ask this now, and we're grateful for this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me as we go to a time of invitation. I want you to know the altar is open. There are individuals up front that will pray with you if you need assistance. If you're struggling with anything in your life today, the Bible says to go to the Lord because he's the one that you are to rely on in the midst of that. Let's sing together.